0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Gas Tax Honesty Day. On Gas Tax Honesty Day, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has issued a warning against the rising carbon taxes. Uh, They complain that the new carbon tax does not appear separately on bills at the pump, meaning drivers pay sales tax on the carbon tax. Is that a tax on a tax? Christine Van Guyne is with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Ontario director and with us now. Hello, Christine. How are you today?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for taking the time. So, is this a tax on a tax? It is, isn't it?
1: Well, of course. I mean, if you're paying sales tax on top of the carbon tax that is about 4.3 cents a liter in, in Ontario, I mean, that, you're paying a tax on tax. And that's sneaky. It, it brings more mon- money to the government, it takes more money out of your pocket, and you don't see that when you get your bill. So, um, canceling the carbon tax tax on tax to save. Ontarians a lot of money, but overall, if we canceled all tax on tax, so uh, sales tax on top of excise tax for gasoline, that would save Canadians one point four billion dollars each year. Uh, so I, I really think uh, it's an important policy that this government should adopt.
0: So what is the what is the object of uh, Gas Tax Honesty Day?
1: What we want to do is highlight to people who might not be aware of how much. How much they're paying in tax when they fill up. So, um, in Ontario, we're sort of middle of the pack for gas taxes, but people are shocked to learn that we're paying almost 37% tax when we fill up at the pump. Uh, it's not as bad as Newfoundland where they, where they're paying about 44% in tax, but I mean, it's, it's gone up over the years and it's, it's worse in Ontario than it is in some other provinces. So, uh, people really need to know that and they really need to know that they're paying tax on top of their tax.
0: So what are you expecting from the Prime Minister's office today when they make their announcement in regard to carbon taxes?
1: I think what, they, what they're planning on doing is they have three options. There's going to be either a carbon tax that they want imposed uh, at $10 a ton, or they want a cap-and-trade system. for. Or uh, these are the three models. And all, the third option, I think, is a hybrid model. And governments that don't impose it um, themselves, provincial governments that don't impose it themselves. The federal government is saying um, from from the reports I've seen, I don't know if the document's out yet, but this is the report I'm seeing, is that the federal government will impose it based on the Alberta model. So um, the Alberta model is about, uh, I believe it's $20 a to ton of carbon tax.
0: So what does this mean for consumers? Uh, what does this mean for Canadians? And what are we to do? I mean, everybody seems to be doing this. M- most countries are doing this.
1: Uh, I'm not sure I agree with you that most countries are doing it, and in particular, our biggest trading partner in the United States isn't doing it. So bringing carbon taxes when, um, you know, our, our biggest competitor and our biggest partner isn't doing it really kind of shoots ourselves in the foot competitively. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's becoming a trend across, uh, across the country, but I think it's a trend that there's a lot of backlash against because, in particular, you know, the government... Uh, Saskatchewan um, is, is really adverse to this. And um, the governments in the north and the territories are also very adverse to this as they already have really high prices for a lot of me- life, life necessities. Um, and frankly, that's what gas is. That's what fuel is. Uh, it's not a luxury to commute to work in the morning. Uh, and you shouldn't have to pay for it like it is.
0: So, um, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, Christine. So what do we do? I mean, clearly there's climate change. Clearly there's issues going on. I mean, that's what most are saying. We're certainly seeing that in the weather we're experiencing. So what are we to do here? Again, uh, the United States has changed their tune with the election of Donald Trump, but we still really don't know where that's going to go. Uh, But as I said earlier, the majority of the countries, I I, I wouldn't say majority, but certainly a lot of industrialized countries are working towards something like this. So, uh, again, what's the alternative here?
1: Well, I just think that that acting unilaterally, when our biggest trading partner and and a lot of the countries that have the largest emissions um, are not acting, uh, it's a recipe for failure. And we saw Australia years ago in 2012, uh, I think it was in 2012, they brought in a carbon tax. And it, it. was quickly repealed because of the damage it did to their economy. Uh, Australia acted unilaterally and it hurt them, and they reversed their decision. Uh, it it makes no sense to do a lot of short-term damage to Ontario families or Canadian families for no gain for the environment, and to hand a huge competitive advantage to to the United States.
0: So why are governments doing it, Christine?
1: Um I think that a lot of governments are kind of had this utopian vision of the world and they think that um, they think that Canada can lead change in the world, Canada can be an example for the rest of the world and um, the the reality is that uh, Australia also thought that they would be an example for the world and lead the world and they did not. Uh Canada bringing in a carbon tax does not mean China is going to do it. So it it, it, it seems it's, it's wishful thinking by the government. Um, And frankly, uh, you know, it makes you feel good, warm and fuzzy inside, but it doesn't achieve anything. And in the end of the day, it hurts our economy a lot.
0: Why, uh, if the federal government is going to impose something like this, why is it not uh, uniform? Why is it, why are we not dealing with the same sort of tax right the way across? Uh, I I think that's where some of the confusion lies is there's, uh, you know, a couple of different ways of doing this. Why do we not have a consistent system here?
1: Well, because a lot of provinces have brought in, uh, their own policies, so there's already an existing patchwork, and Ontario's policy, in, in Quebec's and Quebec's and and Ontario's in particular with cap and trade, are especially complicated and difficult to unravel, so, because, because we use, Quebec and Ontario are using cap and trade. So, for the federal government to come in and impose something top down on provinces where they might already have a policy in place, uh, it creates a lot of a lot of conflict between provinces and the federal government. So I think that uh, it might be uh, politically an easier option for the, for the Prime Minister to say, um, you can keep what you have, uh, if you don't have anything, we're going to impose it. But what it results in is dramatically different prices across the country. Uh, British Columbia's carbon tax is about $30 a ton, whereas Ontario's is 18 So it leads to different prices and different results and, and different competitive environments.
0: Uh, why are we not going with what we have then across, the lo- uh, across a national system? Why would the government not look and say, well, this system, again, you know, uh, all these provinces must look at how each other's handling it and learn from their mistakes. I'm sure lots are learning from Ontario's uh, mistake with electricity uh, and, and what wind has done and, and driven us into energy poverty. So why don't we look at all of these examples and have an educated discussion and then pick the right one?
2: Um,
1: yeah, I think that that probably makes more sense than the patchwork that we have, but that's not what the government seems to be announcing today. And I think probably the issue is, is, uh, provincial rights. The provinces want to have uh, authority to impose what kind of policies they want, um, even if they're, even if they're bad policies. And frankly, I'm not sure I agree with you that, that other provinces have learned from Ontario's lessons, because it looks like Rachel Notley in Alberta is following down Ontario's Um, same path, especially with respect to coal.
0: So why would they, uh, again, Christine, and I'm sure I'm asking you questions you can answer, but why do this? Why lead us down a path that doesn't work? Why lead your party down a path that that won't get you elected? Um, If the majority of people don't want this, why are we moving in this direction? Or I guess a better way to put it is, why are we moving so quickly?
1: I mean, I can't get into these politicians' heads. I don't know what they're thinking when they bring in policies that we know don't work and that hurt. Uh, or hurt the economy and hurt families. But I wish I could so that I could change their mind. So I can't answer your question. I don't really know what they're thinking. Um, Typically, I think most politicians think in a way that is designed to maximize their electoral success. So
2: um,
1: I would just leave that with you.
0: Do you think this is less about carbon tax and more about generating revenue for themselves?
1: Um, I'm not sure about that with respect to the federal government, um, just because I don't know... I haven't seen the documents, but I haven't seen what they've released today. Um, I don't think they've actually released it yet, or they might be releasing it right now. Um, but with respect, with respect to the provincial government, of course, it's about maximizing their revenue. Cap-and-trade is, is expected to bring in um, nearly $2 billion a year. So, Is um, the
0: BC model better than the Ontario model, do you think?
1: I don't think either model's good, but I think that the, the Ontario model is particularly bad because it is complex. Um, it requires the creation of a whole new level of bureaucracy, and it, um, it 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 has almost no transparency because people don't see on their bills that they're that they're paying um, these taxes. And the other issue is that um, it allows the government to engage in a kind of corporate welfare by giving um, special advantages to businesses. Um, giving free credit, free allocations of carbon credits to businesses that successfully lobby them. So um, the Ontario model has a, a whole lot, list of, of problems that don't exist in British Columbia, but I, I, the British Columbia model I I, I don't endorse either. Uh,
0: so you wouldn't consider one necessarily better than the other, and because, obviously in BC no, they I, seem I, to be paying I more. Would,
1: I do think one is better than the other, but I think both are bad. I right. think that the Ontario one is probably the worst model that that exists. Uh,
0: but do people in BC pay more than Ontario Ontarians do?
1: Um, yeah, in British Columbia, they're paying about um, thirty cents a liter instead of uh, instead of eighteen or sorry, thirty cents sorry thirty dollars a ton instead of right. eighteen dollars a ton. And uh, in British Columbia, they are the second highest gas taxes in the country. Second only to Newfoundland and Vancouver in particular, which has a special um, additional levy.
0: So why do you think their system is a bit better, even though they're both bad? Why do you think theirs is better if it's taking? It's more
1: straightforward. People know that the tax exists. People people see it on their bills, um, and it's it's easy to understand. You know that what it is
0: so where do you think this is going christine um do you uh, again the, the pcs uh said that they uh support some sort of carbon tax is, is this inevitable
1: yeah so i'm not i'm not sure it's inevitable. i think that the more these costs go up and they are going to go up the federal government had leaked documents ago um that show by 2050 they want the carbon tax to be about 300 dollars a ton so Um, I think that when we get to these levels where it becomes so unaffordable to live in this province, there's going to be a big backlash. And we're seeing a backlash in Ontario right now against the provincial government because of their constant meddling in the electricity sector. So um, I'd say that as things get worse and worse with these policies, um, the backlash is going to escalate over time, similar to how it did in Australia.
0: How do you think the public is going to receive what the Prime Minister says today?
1: Um, You know, it's hard to to guess how the public's going to react to it. Um, A lot of these things are kind of, you know, not everyone pays attention to to announcements like this, especially since he's been saying for a long time that it's going to happen. And and the implementation is is almost certainly going to lay with the provinces. So I think people are mostly busy with their lives. And that's why we have events like Gas Tax Honesty Day, so that when people are going about their day, going about their life, um, filling up at the pump, we we help educate them about how much they're paying.
0: Website we can go to, Christine, to find out more about what you are up to?
1: Yeah, head to taxpayer.com and, and you'll see some photos from today's events across the country. And you can sign our petition asking politicians to end the tax on tax on
0: gasoline. Christine Van Gein has been with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Ontario Director. Christine, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for
0: having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, the federal liberals will roll out their carbon pricing plan to the provinces today. The provinces will have until the end of 2018 to introduce their own. And if they don't, Ottawa will impose its own model on them. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Warren Maybe is with us, director of Queen's University Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy, and is with us now. Hello, Warren. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We certainly do appreciate this. Uh, What are you expecting from the Prime Minister's office today?
3: Well, I really expect them to put in place what they've been promising, which is some kind of a scheme, and we've been hearing that it may be a combination of cap-and-trade and and carbon tax, two ways to put a price on carbon. Um, And they'll essentially roll that out in any province that doesn't introduce their own method of of pricing carbon. You know, this has become the go-to tool, the go-to policy to try to deal with our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, putting a price on carbon. Uh, The federal liberals have made it part of their job, really, to make sure that there's some kind of consistency in price right across the country.
0: And your thoughts on this?
3: Well, I mean, you have to think about why we might price carbon, In the first place, a lot of people, I think, get very hung up on the dollar value. You know, how much is it going to cost? What's that going to mean for me? But, you know, in reality, we want to price carbon not so much to raise money. Although, you could certainly argue that maybe governments do want to raise some money. Uh, We want to price carbon so that people will change their behavior. That they'll do something different uh, and reduce that overall footprint, the emissions that are associated with what they do. Uh, So is this the right way forward? I think in some areas, carbon pricing can work. In others, it's going to be very difficult.
0: What more can Canadians do that they aren't already doing with what we have as far as transportation and and other alternatives?
3: You know, a big part of the problem is that your average Canadian family doesn't have a lot of choices uh, when it comes to what their carbon footprint looks like. You know, think about your house. You don't have a lot of options on how you might heat your house. Uh, You can insulate, you know, you can put better insulation in, you can have better windows and doors. All of this costs money. Uh, All of this, uh, you know, has to be budgeted for. It can take your average family years and years to bring a house up to, you know, a high level of performance. They may or may not have access to public transit. Um, It may get them to work or it might not. (laughs) You know, in many cases, the options just aren't there. And so when we start talking about a plan for Canada to reduce emissions, uh, there will need to be some money to create those options. You know, we've got to have uh, the alternatives before us before Canadians can make better decisions.
0: Are we doing that?
3: Um, In some cases, yes. Uh, Certainly we're seeing some positive signs from this government in Ottawa that, you know, they want to push forward on transit, Uh, They have been very proactive on trying to promote that, although we've yet to see kind of the big uh, infrastructure outlays that we're hoping to see in that space. Um, It would be good to see money go into better buildings, uh, you know, a a stronger building code uh, and more uh, energy efficient, closer to net zero buildings, uh, which would really reduce our overall footprint. And then the big one <clears throat> lately is uh, transit uh, or transport, the big trucks. You know, we have a lot of big trucks traveling around. Can we do something to bring those emissions down? That is a very difficult area to deal
0: with. Why are there more than one system? Why why haven't we figured out something that will work universally? And I, I think that's what helps, I guess, create skepticism is nobody's sure where the money's going, um, again, it, it's almost as if we're putting the cart before the horse.
3: Yeah, um, a lot of people would like to see a single system come in. Uh, what I like to tell my students is that you know, maybe there isn't just one price for carbon. You know, When you start to think about all of the different places where we emit carbon, uh, electricity is a good one. There are a lot of alternatives for generating electricity now, you know, we have solar panels, we have uh, wind farms, we have hydroelectric power, there's nuclear power, there's lots of ways to generate electricity that's pretty green. And so the price you need to put on carbon to make change happen might be relatively low, but the price you might need to put on carbon to change the way that people heat their homes could be pretty high because that's a that's an entire paradigm shift. Uh, to step away from using natural gas or to, you know, go to uh, kind of passive heating systems or heat pumps or something like that. It's a very different system. It could be much, much more expensive. And that's why I think we're seeing different systems roll out. You know, some of them are geared at industrial uh, emitters who can make big changes in a factory that really reduce emissions. Others are really geared at us consumers, and, and they're more that incremental change.
0: Why is government doing this?
3: Well, really, it's all about reducing that overall footprint. Uh, You know, Canada has a low, um, relatively low uh, greenhouse gas emission profile compared to other countries in the world. But it's very high on a per capita basis because we just don't have the population compared to some countries. So on a per capita basis, we're one of the worst emitters in the world. Uh, we do need to find ways to bring those emissions down. We know that it's not just about living in a northern country uh, because there are countries like Norway and Sweden that have managed to bring their emissions down fairly significantly. So there are ways for us to do better. It's just a question of, uh, you know, how do we make that
0: work? Are Canadians doing their share? Are we doing Uh, more than our share or less than our share? Again, because I think you would, if you were asked, most Ontarians now, especially with the electricity file, yeah. they would say they're doing more than their share.
3: Yeah, I think that as you go across the country, the answers are different. I think that Ontario has been a leader in changing the electricity over changing the electricity file. Uh, we've been investing fairly heavily in transit and, you know, uh, trying to promote smarter growth, although... Uh, smart growth is a really difficult thing to achieve, apparently. Uh, we we certainly have tried to do a lot. There are other provinces where, arguably, there's more to be done. Um, but the truth is, every province is kind of following its own path. You know, Saskatchewan has invested a lot in carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, does that count towards this overall goal? I, I think it probably does, but it, it gets measured in a different way. So it starts to become confusing to compare uh, place to place.
0: Uh, Where is the U.S. on this now? How does this change things for Canada?
3: So the U.S. has changed direction uh, to some extent. Uh, Certainly in Washington, under the leadership of President Trump, uh, they are backing away from many of the climate pledges that President Obama had put into place. Uh, Things like the CAFE standards, you know, the standards for uh, car emissions, vehicle emissions. They're, they're pulling back on that, uh, allowing companies a little bit more leeway in terms of uh, how fuel efficient their vehicles have to be and what kind of emissions they produce. What we are seeing, though, is that a lot of states like California um, are still following that you know kind of green plan, climate-friendly plan, uh, and the states do have a fair bit of power inside of the U.S., and so I think right now, it it doesn't mean that Canada should abandon our ways. Definitely, we need to watch what happens in Washington. We need to respond to that. Uh, But what's happening in Washington isn't always clear. So uh, at this point, I think we sort of stay our course.
0: What is the advantage to being a leader when the U.S. and countries like China aren't following?
3: Well, actually, I would disagree about China. China is a problem when it comes to emissions, but they're also investing heavily in... Uh, renewable power. You know, one of the stats that I often throw out to my students is that Canada has seen renewable power growth uh, by about three and a half, 3.8 percent per year since 2010. You know, since a lot of these technologies started taking off, which sounds good, but China has gone up by five percent a year, and the U.S. has gone up by almost six percent per year. So <clears throat> these countries that we're pointing to and saying, you know. They're not doing as well as we are, so maybe we don't have to do that well. They're actually doing better. Um, Really, we haven't been uh, keeping up, and and there's a lot of work that I think we need to do.
0: How can you say that when people in China are walking around with masks and we're not?
3: (laughs) It's a good question, because China's electricity uh, is still largely generated from coal. Their heat is still largely generated from coal. So they do have a much dirtier uh, kind of environment to deal with. Uh, I'm just looking at what's happening over the last few years. Their investments into renewable power have been significant, and I think it's because they recognize that they have a huge, huge problem. Canada doesn't have that kind of a problem. Uh, we've been able to kind of sit back. You know, we were blessed. We had Niagara Falls to start with. Uh, so we were able to uh, harness that. You know, we still call our electricity hydro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, other countries haven't had that kind of benefit starting out. So, you know, I, I think that Canada's done well. Uh, I think Canada could do better.
0: Is nuclear the answer?
3: Nuclear certainly has a role to play. You know, the big problem with nuclear has, has never been um, as much associated with the footprint, although some people would argue that, you know, until we really know how to deal with waste, it's, it's still a dangerous option. For us, it's been that we don't have storage. Uh, we, we end up having these plants that run all night without enough electricity demand to use up the power. So we end up needing to dump that electricity at a relatively low rate. If you could turn nuclear off, if you could turn it off at night, uh, we would have no problems using it because you can't. Uh, we do end up with some problems. It can't be the only answer. It can only be part of the answer.
0: Dr. Warren maybe has been with us, Director of Queen's University Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy. Doctor, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So let's bring in uh, Mitch Lebuick, partner at BDO Canada, focuses on indirect, ta- uh, indirect, t- uh, indirect tax, I'm sorry, and is with us now. Hello, Mitch. How are you today? I'm doing quite well. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well, Mitch. What are you expecting from the government today?
2: Well, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, governments, governments uh, you know, keep their cards fairly close to their chest, and, uh, you know, they like to reveal things in a, in a very organized manner. I mean, it has been fairly transparent that the federal government is wanting to mimic or somewhat copy what has been done in the province of Alberta by the uh, Notley government here regarding their carbon levy and their uh, climate leadership change and so on.
0: Your thoughts on this?
2: Well, I mean, what are are the thoughts on a carbon tax? I mean, there's two schools of thought whenever we look at taxation of any type, and that is, generally speaking, people do not like more taxes. Uh, You know, less tax is good, more tax is bad. So when we look at it on a very high level that way, I don't think that applying additional taxes is necessarily a good thing, especially when we want to grow and expand our economy. Now, that being said, we have to look at and consider what is the purpose behind the carbon tax or the carbon levy. And and when we look at taxes like this that governments have brought in, now, whether that's municipal, provincial, or federal governments, there's been a history where um, you induce or you bring in a tax to try and change behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at a carbon tax right now, what, what the gist of it is – or what the purpose of it is, is to try and increase the cost of using conventional fossil fuels that produce greenhouse gas emissions with the intent of reducing the amount that's produced. So the theory behind it is that if it becomes more expensive people will use less of it, less greenhouse gas emissions, better for the environment. I believe that's the objective and the philosophy behind the tax itself. Will it work? will it work well it's odd you bring that up i mean we we here in canada have very little experience with it when we look at it in terms of the longevity as we know it can take significant time for taxation policy to affect the habits and behaviors of people but if we take and we look at say the country of uh, sweden for example sweden's had their carbon levy in place since 1991 and it is a tax that right now sits at about $150 per metric ton of greenhouse gas. Now, that works out to about $0.35 cents per litre for uh, gasoline and so on. And the, the issue there is, did this tax actually do anything? And, and in Sweden, they found that their greenhouse gas emissions did go down to some degree. However, when we look at Norway over the same period of time, Their uh, carbon levy is about $64 per metric ton. And when we look at it over roughly the same period, um, transportations from road traffic were up 32%, and their overall emissions uh, actually increased 4% as well. Now, Norway has a very, very um, energy-based type economy, whereas Sweden doesn't as much. So when you say, is a carbon levy going to change things, I think that that's a very broad question, and you have to place it more specifically into the context of what specific things you want to measure.
0: Our Canadian... Sorry, go Go ahead. ahead. No,
2: I was just going to say, BC, for example, they've noticed a reduction of about 3% in their greenhouse gas emissions with a $30 per metric ton uh, levy in place, and that's been in place since about 2008.
0: Are these changes coming through business or mostly residential customers?
2: Well, um, you know, statistics are still quite new and and not readily available yet. Um, What they have noticed is that some of the biggest changes, at least in Sweden and Norway, were through uh, certain fixed types of manufacturing as well as residential type things. So, you know, your home heating, your home electricity, Manufacturing processes have been able to be refined to help reduce greenhouse gases. Um, the information that I have seems to be absent in commenting on the ability for resource-based industries and what effect they've been able to affect change as well. So uh, the information seems to be somewhat silent in that regard or not available at this time.
0: Are Ontarians, Canadians, Ontarians specifically, paying too much for for too little? Are we getting bang for our buck here?
2: Um, Hard to say what bang for the buck is. I mean, right now in Ontario... I guess our Canadians,
0: uh, are are Ontarians paying too much for too little? Are we paying, are are Ontarians paying too much of the burden for the rest of Canada, the rest of the world, the rest of, uh, you know, the the rest Mm -hmm. of the world suffering from these issues?
2: Yeah, I mean, we haven't got, you know, I haven't been able to get data in terms of the impact of carbon in terms of Ontario versus the globe. I mean, the statistics that we have always look at Canada as a whole compared to the rest of the world. But on a global basis, Canada produces 1.6% of all the greenhouse gas emissions. So when we look at that in terms of global change, um you know if canada hits all of their metrics and goals uh... what does that look like on a global stage in other words i guess how much influence does canada have in the global world production of greenhouse gas um, that's a question that's yet to be answered i mean canada always has been a leader in a number of areas whether it's you know from refugee status or providing aid we're a small country we do the best that we can and we try to lead by example so uh, I'm not sure if that addresses your question, but that's really the information we have at this time on it.
0: Mitch Lebuick has been with us, partner at BDO Canada, focuses on indirect, uh, indirect tax. Mitch, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Appreciate the opportunity, and uh, good luck with things. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, it's been a long time since we haven't uh, done a break about Donald Trump on this show, and uh, with him and his ongoing tweets, it looks like that will continue uh... the latest news in which there's pretty much a bombshell a day here the u.s. department of justice has selected former fbi uh, director robert mueller to act as independent counsel in the investigation of, of course, Russian ties to the election campaign, and Trump uh, associates as well. To talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper is with us, Distinguished Senior Fellow, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and is with us now. Hello,
4: Elliot. How are you today? I'm a little warm, but I'm fine, Scott. <laughs>
0: hey, hey, you know what? We've been waiting a long time for this, Elliot. That's one way to look at it. No complaints. Uh, your thoughts on uh, former FBI Director Robert Mueller uh, being uh, now a part of this this investigation? Do you have confidence in this investigation moving forward?
4: Well, my first thought about it is it's a major step uh, forward or a major step in this onvo- ongoing and evolving situation. This is kind of a transformative moment. We'll have to see where it actually goes. But until now, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of chatter. There's a couple investigations going on, three, I guess, uh, through Congress and uh, the FBI. But now we have an actual prosecutor Uh, with a lot of independence and a lot of authority to explore the possibilities of uh, what did the Russians do and were the Trump people involved, and anything else that might happen to come up. And if you need more authority, come back and ask for it. So uh, this is really a major step.
0: Why would the U.S.
4: Department of Justice
0: do this now?
4: Department of Justice, uh, the trigger for this apparently was, remember you, you said it's a bombshell a day. It's really almost every hour. But apparently the release of the information that the fired FBI director, Comey, had been taking minutes, notes, for the file on uh, whatever he, he and Donald Trump spoke about over time, and that Donald Trump had asked him to please go light on, on General Flynn, don't, don't proceed with the investigation, that could be considered obstruction of justice. And that, in turn, it seems to be what's happened. But there's a political side to it as well. The person who's uh, actually set this up and did so uh, (laughs) under a great uh, great cloud of secrecy was the acting deputy, uh, the, the deputy attorney general, and he was acting in his capacity as attorney general because the sitting attorney general, Jeff Sessions, has to recuse himself on anything to do with Russia because he, too, was caught not reporting on some conversations he had, which is what got General Flynn in trouble, among other things, so... The convoluted answer to this is uh, a brand-new deputy attorney general who felt he was hung out to dry by the Trump administration. Uh, He was being blamed for why Comey got fired. Well, we just asked him to look into it, said uh, the Trump people originally, and he said that uh, there was reason to fire Comey. We just accepted his recommendation, and that's what all the surrogates for the president said, and he felt like he'd been badly used, and now comes along, a way basically to say, look, I truly am a, a, a law-abiding, an official that uh, does his job properly. And my proper job here is to appoint a special counsel.
0: White House, was the White House surprised by uh, the Department of Justice's decision to do this?
4: Apparently they were taken uh, flat-footed. Uh, there was no hint that it was coming. Uh, they initially responded in a very muted fashion, but the uh, the tweets have started saying this is the greatest witch hunt against a a politician in the history of America, that kind of tweet. So uh, they are basically in shell shock on this. The uh, a few things about this: we have to note that the actual um, role, the scope of this special counsel, is for inquiring about illegality, not about inappropriate behavior. So theoretically, he could issue a one-sentence report later saying, "I didn't find anything that would stand uh, before a jury." So I'm not going to proceed with anything. That won't happen. He's, in fact, going to do a lot of things and report. To whom does he report? He reports back to this deputy attorney general. The deputy attorney general, in turn, receives it confidentially. And, indeed, he's the only one who can actually fire this special counsel. But it hasn't been noticed much. The president can, fired, can fire the deputy attorney general who's getting the report. So this is a very convoluted, convoluted way of saying illegality is now hanging over the Trump administration in the form of a special counsel, and yes, this is a big deal.
0: Uh, is this the greatest witch hunt ever?
4: No, uh, you can <laughs> uh, actually the, the, that brought to mind a, a few other things. We actually had witch hunts, and the McCarthy era is one of the darkest era in uh, certainly American history, and it it clouded politics in Canada and elsewhere. So, no, this is. Um, this is a president who feels that he's been sandbagged, that he's under under assault. But uh, let's continue some of the other implications. Another one is that Donald Trump is about to take his first foreign visit, mm-hmm. and it's not to Canada, which is traditional, by the way. Uh, he perhaps thinks the day after you trigger an after review is not a good time to visit Canada, huh. <laughs> so he's going instead on a uh, trip to the to the Holy Lands. He's going to the Vatican after going to Israel and also to Saudi Arabia, the, the Sunni heartland, and then he's going to the G7 and to NATO. This is a major foreign trip, and suddenly he's taking this trip while under a legal cloud, a, a, a legal investigation into his administration. Um, so I, I think that should be noted. It's going to be a change of what was going to be his triumphal emergence as a world leader showing statesmanship, uh, he's now clearly defensive, and uh, we'll have to see how he handles himself.
0: When will we hear from Comey?
4: We don't know. Comey has been, uh, somebody said, he's the most wanted man in Washington now. Uh, the three investigations which have been ongoing are going to continue, so that the House and the Senate and the FBI investigations apparently are going to run parallel to anything that the special counsel will now do. And they in turn are after Comey, and he was asked to uh, testify under certain circumstances, and he said, "No, uh, no, I won't come if it's going to be public, or if it's going to be private. I don't, whichever way it turned out." So we don't know when Comey will be called, but he certainly will be called by the <laughs> by the special counsel who has worked with him in the past. Now, remember, the special counsel was actually the head of the FBI himself for a long time and had worked with Comey during the Bush administration to stop basically illegal activities by the Bush administration under a long ago and now forgotten set of circumstances involving uh, the Attorney General Ashcroft. So there's all that. There's another matter, Scott, that I think that we should talk about in regard to this, the two consequences of this appointment, or to put it differently, what really matters here? Does it matter if you have a special counsel or not? And I think there's two situations where it matters. Yes, if something comes out that's illegal or impeachable, well, those are two different things. Then it can make a difference as to the success or failure of the Trump administration and even the continuation of it. But the only thing that ultimately matters is how this goes down in the American electorate, assuming that the president is not and people around him are not affected uh, by the investigation over illegal or impeachable offenses. So, the final arbitrator of all of this is the midterm elections. That's coming. And will the Republican base, which has stayed rock solid for Donald Trump, finally abandon him over this? This is ultimately a struggle for power. And now we have a special counsel right in the middle of it.
0: Why would Comey not want to get hit, have his side heard at this point?
4: Well, uh, the, um, the question is, uh, you're asking me to get inside the, the head of the Fired FBI director.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The
4: logic of the situation is that he was he will he wants to be heard. Yeah. It's the circumstances under which he would be heard, and he has to be extremely careful what he says because we're now speaking about the possibility of the removal of the president of the United States because one obstruction of justice is one uh, charge that you could uh, raise against him plausibly. I think that's a stretch personally, but I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but when you get to the house. If uh, if this drags on through the midterm elections and the Democrats take the House, then they could use obstruction of justice in a political sense to, to drop a charge sheet uh, and to, that is uh, an impeachment proceeding. So Comey's a key player in all this. He has worked with this uh, new special counsel before. They know each other. They, I think, have respect for the institutions of America in a, in a way that they see are, are being challenged, the role of the FBI, the role of special counsels and so forth. They, I suspect, see are being under under threat.
0: Um, going back a couple of days, you were saying about uh, yeah, there seems to be a bombshell an hour here. Uh, going back a few days, um, when Trump meets with Russian officials uh, at the White House, there's pictures taken by. Uh, Russian photographers, But only Russian photographers. Only Russian photographers. Uh, there's, you know, allegations floating around that 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 uh, Trump is revealing things that he shouldn't be revealing to these uh, Russian officials. Uh, Putin's response is uh, after after uh, Schumer asks for transcripts of the meeting. If they want transcripts, we can provide transcripts for them. What does it say when when Putin offers transcripts from a meeting that was that was uh, Uh, had at the White House. Well,
4: you could suggest he's having a lot of fun with this, Mm -hmm. but it's actually extremely serious because at the heart of everything that we've been talking about is the Russian role in intervening in the American election. And that's one thing, item number one, uh, irrespective of the Trump connection, that's item number one on the special counsel's list. He's going to check out what the Russians did or didn't do. The Russians allegedly, allegedly are on a rampage here. They've interfered in the American election. They've been interfering in the French election. They're trying to weaken the EU, allegedly, and other elections across Europe. So uh, the the Russian connection here is uh, crucial, central to everything that we're talking about. Who is the big winner? It's arguably the big winner is Putin. If indeed it's true that the Russians intervened to, in effect, uh, draw questions over the legitimacy of an American electoral process, if that turns out to be true, then... This is a a remarkably successful, unexpectedly successful venture because now the administration is mired into this mess and America's government is at a halt and various factions or branches of government are uh, are involved in in dealing with everything except policy. So the the other big winner would be China because China is saying if America does not wish to lead and cannot lead, we are both able and willing to lead. And they just held a big conference In Beijing uh, saying you know we have this great plan basically what we would call a Marshall Plan for the world we're going to lead globalization 2.0 so there are forces which are inimical to America's interest and there are forces trying to replace America's role in the world and all of this plays into it
0: how do you think the White House or even Trump views comments by Putin like this
4: one of the big mysteries all along and that's one of the things we'll finally be getting to we suspect through this special counsel is the mysterious role of Donald Trump and Putin and Russia there's clearly been a soft spot uh, by by candidate Trump and now by president Trump toward the Russians and toward Putin and whereas much of his own uh, much of his own cabinet and certainly much of the American uh, power elite uh, thinks Russia is a hostile power so why is he so so solicitous of Russia, and that's one of the questions that may well come out.
0: Especially when it appears, you know, whether it's the Russian officials commenting on the firing of Comey, whether it's Putin, what he says about the transcripts at at the Oval Office. I mean, obviously they're mocking America. Trump, the White House, don't seem to care about that.
4: Well, as I say, they're mocking, they're having fun with this. Mm-hmm. But there's a very serious uh, flip side to it. All of this is making mischief for America. If indeed they had something to do with setting it all in train, and that is the number one purpose of the special counsel, uh, then this has been a remarkably successful uh, what what would be called an active measures campaign of disinformation, trolling, hacking, and so forth, uh, to interfere and to basically shake the nature of American, shake it, not shape it, uh, so that you know the American model doesn't look so great after all in the world. Take Mm. a look at ours.
0: Will, uh, you you talked about Trump going on his first foreign visit. Will this cool things off here, do you think, or uh, do you think he'll just inflame overseas?
4: Well, let's let's take the attitude that could be taken by the Republicans, including the Trump White House, that what this really does is finally clear all questions relating to Russia off the table, they can say no matter what comes up, saying, sorry, that's under investigation by the special counsel. Now let's talk about my policies on education, where we're going to cut the budget for public education. What about the Environmental Protection Act? We're cutting that. So there's a lot of Republican policy uh, that it certainly includes tax cuts, which are coming, but also anything on the environment and so forth. The Republicans have an agenda, which they now can arguably, um, Say, look, let's get on with it because anything having to do with what you're asking about is under special investigation. That's an optimistic view uh, for the for the Russian. I'm sorry for the Republicans because actually the White House, uh, the Republican White House, is now so uh, battered and so caught up with day to day, almost hour by hour scandal or questioning or self inflicted harm that it's going to be hard to get uh, the Republican agenda through. But on the face of it, you could say this is good news for the Republicans. So they can say, let's clear that off the table. It's going to be in the back burner. Let this thing grind on. Nobody will ever talk about it in public anymore. So while well, we get on with implementing what we were elected to do.
0: What does it say when Mitch McConnell stands up and said it would be nice if there was a little less drama at the White House?
4: Well, there's an irony to that because, as you know, the President Obama was called no, no drama Obama. <laughs> mm. And one thing we definitely have had with the election of Donald Trump is drama this is Mitch McConnell and and Paul Ryan's moment to proceed with what has l- been long-standing policy regarding republican priorities and that certainly involves uh, huge tax cuts and the president wants an infrastructure program and but the entire nature of the how America is governed is being shaped by the republican agenda which is arguably now being derailed because of the constant turmoil in the the White House. But as I say, you could also say, well, no, now they have a chance to go ahead. They'll pass things. The president will sign it. And the Republican agenda, which has been going forward, will now continue. We'll have to see. Ultimately, Scott, this comes down to power. Will the Republican base stay with the Republican Party or will there be a huge swing at the midterms? And that's a question for the American electorate.
0: Elliot Tepper has been with us, senior fellow, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
4: Certainly, Scott. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.